Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. My guest today is a guy who just makes, you know, I was thinking about, it's Dave Hawes. You spell his name differently like than it's pronounced probably. Uh, H-A-U-S-E. And the reason I want you to know the spelling is uh, I have a goal uh, for just having Dave on the pod, which is I just want more people to know his music. Uh, I love it. It's, uh, I think he makes timeless music. He's a great songwriter. I think he's an important songwriter. And um, I don't think that his work is as well known as it should be. So go, like maybe even right now, and pause this. And like, go either grab his most recent record, Blood Harmony, uh, or grab Kick, and uh, throw it on for a second. Listen to a couple songs and come back if you're not already a Hawes guy. And uh, Dave, great to have you here, man. Man, it's a pleasure. It's been a long time coming and I'm a fan of the podcast. So whenever I get to go on a podcast that I actually listen to in my van on tour or, or, you know, when I'm walking around with my kids, I'm always thrilled. So thank you for having me. Yeah. We've had a couple of good long talks, me and you. And um, I'd always figured we would do this at the right time. And I think, you know, Blood Harmony having recently come out and it's such a strong record that it feels like a great time to do this. You know, uh, I guess I was introduced to your music because I'd, I think I'd put something on Twitter, like asking for a certain kind of music and someone hit me to the Philly album. And then from there, what happened? You reached out. I said something nice about you and then you reached out because you had the, which I loved the way you did it. And, and, you know, I think you waited until I had expressed something nice about your music publicly. And I think then you sent me kick early, right? Yeah. I was surprised to see, I mean, I've, I've followed the work that you do. And, and like I said, I've, I followed the podcast. And and so one day on Twitter, you said that you were listening over the weekend to an old Petty record. I think let me up. I've had enough or something like that, which I'm a fan of all things, Tom Petty. And you listed that record, another record, and then bury me in Philly, which was my third solo. Yeah. My third record that came out in 2017. So I was surprised and like, whoa, uh, this is a guy, you know, who's writing I love and whose podcast I love, et cetera, et cetera. So I said, maybe I should send him this new record we just wrapped. And that was kick. And, you know, it wasn't for any other reason than, hey, maybe you'd like this, too. I don't know. And so I think I just. Hate no, I mean, point. but I think it's really like cool. And then I took, you know, I put saboteurs in a huge spot on billions and. Yeah. Um, and really because the song just killed me, you know, uh, I heard it and, and it, look, it's a, it's a dicey kind of a thing to reach it. We all, all of us um, on social media in that way, who are get friendly with artists online and you don't know, you know, when is it okay to ask? But I just remember the way you did it was super cool. And, and like I say, it had come after I'd expressed enthusiasm for what you did. And so when I got the record, um, man, I just loved it. And, uh, I gotta say blood harmony is super strong. One of the great things, you know, preparing for like, I, I don't know. How do you listen to music now, Dave? Like, do, do you, like when we were kids, you know, I'm 11 years older than you or whatever, but still when we were kids, right. We would get an album yeah, or CD mm-hmm. and we'd have a phone that was like or the internet. So 
we would just go put the album on yeah. and listen to it. Right? right. Right. Do you still listen that way to people's records? I listen to people's records that grab me that way. I'm currently doing that um, with a songwriter that I just discovered named Jordan Shellhart. Um, somebody hit me to her record. I'm not probably not even supposed to have it. I, I think it's like, you know, I have like a private link to it or something. I'm listening to that record with that level of, of interest and devotion because a song on the record reached out and hit me called daughter. Um, but I don't, you know, this is a weird, this is a weird thing that you mentioned. I, I think that we're kindred spirits in that way, in that we probably both watch or yearn for a time wherein we watched movies, film, read books, and listened to music with like complete devotion. And, you know, this, this culture that we live in now is there's so much noise. There's so much stuff coming at you. And I think for people who are excited about creativity and excited about information, um, it can get very easy to get distracted and to not have that laser focus that we had as kids, which kind of shaped our taste and shaped who we were as people. Um, so I, I, it's tricky. It's tricky knowing like when to dig in. I mean, there's just so much coming at you. I mean, I think unfortunately for me, what happens is I just go back to artists that I've always loved. And when they make new work, I'm, pro I'm like more attuned to that, you know, so if Elvis Costello makes a record or, um, you know, whoever fill in the blank of somebody that's already reached out to me, that's probably where I'm going to go faster, but I do miss what you're describing. Yeah, I got to, I mean, for me, like, you know, uh, but even, even with the artists, like uh, Craig Finn sent me his record and mm -hmm. I mean, there's just no bigger Craig Finn fan than me. Yep. And, but, but I want to, I want to make the time where it's not just, I'm putting it on kind of song by song as I'm doing whatever the fuck else I'm doing. And right. I, I want to create the space to listen like the way that we used to listen because i know i'm rewarded if i do that with great so what i was gonna say is you know i listened to your album when it came out but probably in the way that we listen now mostly right. which is like oh cool dave sent me his record i'm i'm doing a bunch of shit but i gotta listen to it it's my guy i'm gonna put it on but what was wonderful for me is you know when i'm prepping for a podcast like i gotta listen right and so i've immersed myself and the rewards of that it's still like one of the greatest things that you get to do is immerse in the art that you love. Uh, an artist that you love, like you said, an artist that you love ahead of time. So, you know, when Jason makes an album, I'm fucking finding the time to go and take a drive and mm -hmm. listen to it. I'm just going to do that. Yes. Uh, because, he mean, you know, I know that it means something to me. And so, yeah, your record, I, I uh, and it's always weird, you know, when someone makes a record like Kick, it's really hard to follow it up. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, it must've been, you know, it's hard because that was clearly like Philly is an incredible album and a real statement of who you are as an artist. Like the first, I would say like the first really mature statement of what Dave Hawes is as an artist is Philly, but kick is this entirely different level of craft <laughs> and record. It's funny you say uh, that because, you know, I used to kind of, uh, struggle under that yoke. I mean, I made it my second record record actually devour um, had yeah, a lot of that. It's also so strong. It yeah. had a lot of pressure. You know, we made that in a, in a studio where we sort of had no business being 
uh, in that studio. It was the studio they made uh, songs for the deaf and and all these like really famous records in, in LA. And I struggled after that, like, oh, what am I going to do? Because I am kind of a student of, of rock and roll in that way. And, and there's uh, Born to Run and Damn the Torpedoes and all these sort of like big albums that make these statements that you're like, okay, well, this could be my version of that. And as I've gone forward, in, especially in the last couple of years, uh, creating more and more music with my brother, forming a record label, which we formed to put out an EP project that I did. Uh, it was two EPs, one covering Patty Griffin songs and one covering yeah. Patty Costello from Dillinger Four songs. A really bizarre idea that only really kind of worked because we had the quarantine time to work on it. But that sort of prompted forming the label, and then we put this record out on the label. And I guess what I've what I've learned over time is just to keep working and going forward because if you stop and think too much about the work you just did you can feel that pressure. I mean, for you, there's probably episodes, um, you know, or films that you've made that, that loom large, not just for you, but for your audience. Totally. And if you got caught up in that trap of, Oh my God, am I going to beat rounders or season two, episode nine, you know, where we really knocked it out of the park and we, you might slow down or you might trip yourself up. And so for me, I think it's weird because um, it's just forward and, and I'm not even sure, like I'm already most of half of the way written on the next album um, that will follow Blood Harmony up because I can't get caught in the trap that you're describing. It, it, it can be really paralyzing. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, the, what was lovely about listening to Blood Harmony was the way that you wrote about there's, I mean, you write about family, clearly, uh, you take inventory, but there's a yearning in it that often isn't, you know, that Sandy song, which clearly has allusions to Bruce and the shore and all that stuff. Uh, and you wrote about, you know, any reference to, Hey, jealousy matters a lot to me. Uh, we almost named an episode. We almost named an episode, Hey, jealousy. And we had this whole run, um, about, the band and the songwriter, Doug was his name, was his name Doug? Uh-huh, yeah. The, uh, Doug Hutchinson, right? I mean, we had this whole run, uh, or what was his name, Doug I don't. Hutchinson? I don't remember. I can't remember. You know, the guy who really wrote the song, the guy who wrote the, the songs and drank himself, sadly. To, well, I, I don't, I don't want to say that if his family's listening. But, you know, the guy who had an untimely young death and wrote all the right. songs. Right, right. And I, I will say it's fascinating, your music often has it, but, but, but listening to this record, it seemed like, Kick is an album, many anthemic songs that are in a weird way. I mean, it's interesting. This is a pandemic record. This record, of course, your choruses are always could be arranged in a way that's anthemic. But mm -hmm. Kick is really an album that's designed as a listener. You think, oh, I got to fucking see this guy live uh, <laughs> because it feels like, you know, it's sing along song. It's I mean, yeah. with Craig Finn, it's, you know, sing along songs. Right. It's right. that's what you're doing. And this yes. record, man, is a real personal statement. It feels, I know it's you and your brother, which is always like Dave and I can make a personal statement, even though it's two of us and yeah. your brother can too. Sure. Uh, but it does feel fucking personal. And like, you're really letting us into not just personal, like um, in an, in, in a, an intellectual way, but I get a sense listening to this album that I'm actually feeling kind of like what the emotional terrain that you were going through as you were writing these songs. Is that, 
Fair. Yeah, I think that that's probably, you know, you start to identify the strengths of, of what you can and can't do. And, and there's things I'd like to get better at as a songwriter and a writer in general. But um, I do think that trying to tap in to that hard balance of, you know, I, I can often see the glasses half empty. And I think when you look around, I mean, that's what I was struggling with so much with kick was we were in the middle of the Trump years and it just felt like we were drowning. You know, this is pre pandemic. So we had no idea what was in store. Um, right. We yeah. Didn't yeah. That yet. But, um, but I think, you know, I wanted to get that record done before my wife was pregnant with our twins. And I was like, well, I've seen all my sisters, all my friends have had kids. I know that my perspective is going to change. So let me get this statement, you know, this, this record kick out uh, before that perspective changes. That was really important to me. And, um, and I think what you, what you're seeing in that record and then, and then also like this blood harmony is kind of an update on, on that view of like, yeah, it's crazy out there and it feels almost hopeless. And yet, we dance and we marry and we have children and we, and we make art and we're creative and we struggle against the tide that seems to want to suck us into our worst, uh, you know, our worst angels or something. So I think that's a lot of what, um, that's the perspective I'm sort of always struggling with is like, um, I can be convinced that it's all doom and gloom really easily. But I think in, in, in writing songs, it's like, well, if it's all doom and gloom, why would you even sit down and write? You know, you, there's got to be some hope. There's got to be something that, that compels you to go forward. And I think that's, that's that emotional terrain you're talking about is kind of what I'm always dealing with. That's what well, the, that, this batch is too, this coming batch. This intersection of the bittersweet, the melancholic with the notion that it's still worth living is probably like what, you know, I, it's funny. I hadn't written down to talk about Craig at all, but it is like what's in common with you and hold steady in a way is like mm -hmm. the ability to know how fucked up shit is and try to celebrate anyway. And in kick, the thing about kick is right. It's, it is presented. Those songs are presented as anthems in a way that here you don't, there are, like I said, you always have kind of, choruses that could be arranged that way, but you're not really presenting anthems in the same way on this album. It felt to me like you were a little more comfortable saying, well, just take a listen, just, just listen to this yeah. as opposed to fucking raise your hands and only figure out what I'm really singing about on the third listen here. It feels right. like on the first listen, you really want us locking into what you're talking about. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because I come from this, this punk rock world. Yes. And, um, and that's been an interesting, it's been a real gift to me. And it's also been a really difficult thing to want to be a songwriter within um, because a lot of my, my peers, a lot of my friends that are older, they're in like these legendary, you know, institutional kind of acts where people, you know, they, they, they're, there's iconic, like iconic uh, logos and there's these, you know, sort of greatest hits of their catalog. And I was in a band that was trying to do that in the loved ones and it sort of met its, its early demise. And then I started this songwriting thing. Cause like all the while, while I was playing punk music in my late twenties and stuff, I was more of a, a fan of, of Warren Zevon and, and Bruce Springsteen and Patty Griffin and, and 
um, Emmylou Harris and things like that. So I had these all these influences swirling around and I kind of made a decision about 10 years ago to just go in that more in that direction. Well, it's funny. The first question I had, I haven't gotten anything I wrote down, but the first question I wrote down to ask you was what's important about the punk ethos, the punk rock spirit to yeah. bring forward in all that you do? Because I think that's the interesting thing about, again, like you would like coming out of and caring and like bleeding for punk. Yeah. I, there is, it seems to me, there is something of the punk rock spirit that you try to bring through through this or that comes through it. So I wanted to, you know, and then yeah. I also had had to ask you like, what were you glad to leave behind from it? But answer the first part first, you know? Well, I would say the thing that, the thing that is, is so precious to me about it is not only the community that was developed. I mean, it really gives you an audience, a potential audience right away that you wouldn't necessarily get if you just went to Nashville with an acoustic guitar or went to Los Angeles and tried to get signed. I mean, up the punk rock scene that, that I witnessed it. There's a built-in audience. There's people already interested. Um, so that was a gift. I think the other thing is just that ferocity of do-it-yourself spirit that, that now that's how we run our business now, you know, like we own the master now. Um, so, so, which is a really, I mean that not to get too inside baseball, but you own your intellectual property and, and, and then you're the one that benefits from the economic pursuit of it. Um, I think, you know, just keeping things appropriate to your size and knowing how to do that, the economics of punk rock have really helped. Um, so there's a lot of things that I've, I've taken forward with it just as a small business owner. Like that's essentially what I am. You know, that's what, that's what we all are until you're until, unless you're Taylor Swift or something. Um, but I, I think that the difficult parts of it is, there are tons of rules like in any other um, subsect of, of culture, you know, whether it's uh, Protestantism or, um, you know, any, anything wherein there's a set of rules, like it's, it's hard to, to struggle against that. And I think that I have, have watched a lot of my friends kind of yield to the, uh, this idea that like, okay, well, we are this band, we are this institution and we play these songs in our set list. And this is what the t-shirts look like. And this is what the brand is. And I, I struggle against that because I feel like that oftentimes doesn't dovetail in with creativity. I want to be free to make records the way I, I want to make kick and follow it up with blood harmony. And, and because the, the emotional terrain is always what I want to present. I want to get into that. That's what always moves me um, as a listener is, is going on the different journeys that, that guys like Bruce Springsteen or Tom Petty or, you know, or Jenny Lewis, you know, even like Connor Oberst. Well, I was going to say Amy Mann. I saw Amy Mann two yes. nights ago at City Winery. And like, you know, obviously Amy came out of the new wave thing and the hair and all yeah. of it. And as I've always held her up, I remember sitting with Michael McDermott in like 1989 and mm -hmm. he was probably 21 about to make his first record. Maybe he's 20. And I, I remember playing him like her first solo record and saying like this, she was just making it like, this is what an artist does. They keep changing and keep pushing themselves and keep listening to whatever their inner yes. voices. And it's like, no surprise that Amy's like an accomplished painter now and cartoonist and right. be, because listening to that, following that curiosity in the muse is, the, and, and having faith that, that uh, the people who love your art will follow you. But it's, 
it's so fucking hard to it's do. It's so it, right? hard, man. And, and it confuses people. And then therefore kind of confuses various managers that I've had. They're like, wait, what are you doing? Sure. Why are you pivoting? Why are you like, do more of the thing that's working. And what I've learned over time is like incrementally, little by little, it all has worked. Just, it's just out of reach in terms of like mainstream success or, or, you know, there's been breaks. I mean, for instance, Billions was a huge thing for, for me. It was a huge thing for our music. It was a, a lot of people got turned on to what we do. Um, when you use that song, um, there have been things along the way that have elevated the profile, but little by little, I think hopefully the hard work that we put into the songwriting and the, and the ferocity of spirit in terms of like chasing the muse, like what's the next thing we want to do and, and committing to that people start to to group around it and follow it and you can start to trust that i mean it is scary this is a well this was a question i i saved for later but you 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 referenced uh the mainstream success of it all and i i do you know I can't help listening to your music and thinking that, you know, you would have been one of the very biggest artists of 1988. And, uh, you know, because you don't chase the trends at all, dude, you write classic fucking songs with really important words that are very stirring and choruses that are, you know, structured and bridges that, uh, do so, you know you're a songwriter songwriter but you're you're not you don't it seems to me and please correct me but you know i love wet leg like i think their album it blows my mind as a piece of art i can't believe what they did they moved the whole thing forward they should be number one mm -hmm. but 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 it is of the moment they're artists who are are fully immersed in the memetics of the culture right this instant yes and they're they have you know millions of artists are trying to do what wet leg did they somehow were able to pan for exactly the gold at that moment those two women are amazing like they figured it out right yeah but you're not pan your pan is not in that same fucking river trying to find that same gold and i wonder about that you're very dexterous musically like you could probably make a record that sounds like now if you wanted to yet you kind of resolutely choose not to and i wonder how you made peace with that i don't know or that I made maybe you don't make peace with it <laughs> i don't know that i made peace with it except for as you age you want to do so gracefully it's interesting that you bring up the hold steady um because a the, they brought the loved ones out on tour on the constructive summer tour so that and that was honestly sure, it makes total sense of course yeah it was like getting it was your favorite band asking you to go out on tour. We, I was so into boys and girls and, and into stay positive. Like those two records came along in my, in my late twenties and like gave, they were a lightning bolt for me. And there ain't nothing, honestly, there ain't nothing better than stay for me. I mean, I love boys oh. and girls, but there ain't nothing better than stay for every song is perfect. Like, oh my God. Album. I love it. And, and, and it's interesting, you know, Craig is a friend. He's, he, they've all been really good to me and kind and they've had me open and, and they've been encouraging and so on and so forth. Um, but, but I also kind of listen and, and try to hear Craig on podcasts and read interviews and things like that. And, and the thing that he 
has said one of the many wise things that he said is it's hard to age gracefully in rock and roll. It's hard to age gracefully at all. Um, And and so I think to your to your question, it would be kind of weird the older I get to try to aim for the zeitgeist. I'm an older guy, you know, like I'm it's it seems more dignified for me to do something that just is compelling to me rather than to try to, um, you know, okay, well, where's where's the next sound coming from or, or you know, well, like, yeah, that's brilliantly said because you know what, man, like, obviously that's the thing. And you can read the interviews with them too. I mean, wet leg are just of the moment. They're not trying to be of the moment right. at all. They're right. definitely, they had no idea anyone would give a fuck. Right. Those two young women happen to be plugged in because they just happen to be plugged into it. Yeah, right. They're not exactly. trying to be something. They are a thing. And that's a thing that happened with Rage Against the Machine. That's a thing that's happened. Yes. I mean, it's happened at various points along, you know, Soundgarden was able to to do that or or whatever. Fill in the blank. There's there's plenty of, of artists of the moment. And, you know, to tra- like Wet Leg's hardest uh, challenge is going to be to transcend the moment and see if they can keep going. But again, like, I, I don't know. Like for me, it's hard to get comfortable as an adult, you know, especially um, as a creative, you know, um, but I think for me, it, it's about kind of going back to the things that I, I do trust in. And, and I, I know songwriting does have form and it does have like sort of a classic nature to it. You can kind of trace it all the way back. I got to open one time for Billy Bragg in, in England. And amazing. Um, that's yeah, amazing. It was amazing. amazing. I mean, he was a guy who, another guy who came along when I heard his music, he changed my whole perspective. But I got to open and, and he said to me backstage, he said, look, you know, we're links in a chain and not every songwriter is a link in the chain that I'm talking about. And he said, you know, like we're linked through Joe Strummer and Woody Guthrie and, um, you know, and only and, decent teacher, Joe Strummer, only decent teacher. Yeah, yeah exactly. Right. And yes. so that and that really resonated for me because I thought, wow, you know, here's a guy that he knows I'm looking up to him. He knows that I uh, and he's giving you that gift of saying. You're part of this. Yeah, you're part of this. You're I'm passing it to you. You're part of this chain that goes back to oh, cool. through Bob Dylan and all this other stuff. So I think in that sense, that's kind of what I always come back to um, in terms of inspiration and so on. And 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 I guess I'm just trusting that the uh, the other thing, like to be slightly crass is. I'm a working class guy. My mom grew up in the projects, right? She she wanted um, a better life for her kids. And so she um, and they and my mom and dad were super into, into evangelical Christianity. I don't hold it against them. Nobody should. But um, the, my mom cleaned toilets so that we could go to private school. She wanted us to go to, to Christian private school. Right. So I, at the same time as like, you know, I'm aware of what you're talking about. Like, yeah, it, it could be more popular. It could be more of a mainstream success or whatever. I'm also at the same time trying to hold in my mind, like my mom cleaned toilets so that I I didn't end up in the projects and I went to school and got an education and I make up songs on a guitar and that's how I make money to pay for my kids uh, shoes. So I try to keep it as grounded as possible and remember that, you know, in terms of, um, you know, I guess like um, class or something like I'm improving on my station. I'm improving on what my mom did. I'm not slipping into a situation where um, 
you know, things are dire for my family and I'm still being creative. So I'm no, I'm no, not- you have an audience. No, you, you brought up mainstream success, right? So right, 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 of course, the, yeah, yeah. You, I'm saying you brought up mainstream success and because like, you, you know, you're also, you're, uh, you're not big on lying to yourself. So there's, I'm sure a gulf between, look, there's a gulf between Tom Petty and, and where, where you are at this stage in your career. Right. But I think part of it has to do with the way, you know, Tom Petty making Tom Petty music today, if he were starting out, taking refugee out of the conversation, <laughs> you know, no, because right. Refugee comes along that if yeah. refugee is like the great, uh, right. You know, at any moment, anyone could write refugee. I mean, if anyone could write refugee, then they could have a huge mainstream audience for right. a moment. Exactly. But Tom Petty wrote two, re- you know, one refugee, basically maybe two free fallen and refugee. Right. That were right. like, uh, that. So, so that's what I was saying. Like in your head is the fact that you can go to any town and play a place and a whole bunch of people, it may not be 10,000 people, but enough people come out to see you Mm -hmm. that that gives you the sense of forward progress in, in what you're doing of uh, a a creative life. That's, that's worthwhile. Yeah. I mean, let's be honest though. I do struggle with it. I think that, um, What I I guess what I was getting at with with referencing my mom was like, I'm also trying to build these things sturdy so that I have a job in my 60s. I'm trying to be able to do this with honor and dignity with an acoustic guitar on a stool if I have to, because, um, you know, the economics of rock and roll and bringing a band and and having a banner and all that stuff are crazy. But if you have songs that are sturdy that connect with people, hopefully when we're all older and slower and, and want to sit down and go to city winery uh, it's not that crazy of a, of a stretch for, for me to play there uh, for my audience. So that that's part of why they're sort of built in that way. That's part of why it's kind of like, it's a classic yes. uh, sound that I, I've kind of gravitated towards, but, um, but I, I guess, yeah, I do struggle with what you're describing, wherein you're like, yeah, there's a little bit more people with each record. There's a, there's, there's a few more people at each show, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it, I, again, I think for me, the motivation has been more and more about new creative energy, new songs, new records. Yes. That's what kind of carries me more so than, than the trends, the up and downs of touring and the up and downs of the industry, because there's nothing like that in, in that energy. And, and you live there. Like this is something you do every morning. You have two shows. Uh, you're a guy who really thrives on that creative energy. And so, you know, that lifeblood. And, and for me, the older yes, I get. But I also was a 49 year old guy who wasn't sure how I was going to, you know, like, so. Right. Yes. That now as a almost 56 year old, I got to, uh, you know. I, I, I got very lucky and David and I did. And, 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 uh, but I had the long nights, as you know, I had the long nights of the soul. So, uh, yeah, uh, I, I got to ask you about that actually. So where did the kids come in for you along that journey? Cause you're, you're a late bloomer in terms of like finding success with your art. And, but you also have kids that are grown. Like, what was that like those late nights? Well, you know, I had these like, I mean, a screenwriter's life is one where there were years that that financially were really very good, like were 
very good by anybody's sort of right. standards. Okay. And then we would, and then the years that were fallow, we would live off the savings. Yes. And it. sometimes that you could live, sometimes I could live for two or three years off of Like mm-hmm. I could do two years if I had a really good year screenwriting. Mm-hmm. Like, like, you know, back then, or if anyone, yeah, it's fine. like back then, if you wrote Oceans 13, which David and I did, you know, you were able to make a lot of like enough yeah. in what they'd pay you to make it. And then in the, you knew the next two years worth of residuals were going to be very big. Well, and you're very big by it. my standards, not by very big by my standards, not maybe by George Lucas's standards. But at the time it was like, we had an apartment on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, kids yeah. in school. We had a, we knew, okay, well, this is what our lifestyle cost. There were plenty of years where all of our peers in New York weren't doing what I were doing. You know, everyone would go away on Christmas vacation. Mm-hmm. And many years, I mean, I were just talking about, I mean, many years we didn't go away, right? We just stayed in New York City and yeah. our kids and we had, but but it was the, but the thing for me was, you know, I was 30 and and, and having kids is what made me know I had to do this. Yeah. Having kids is what made me know I had to be an artist because I I was not going to be happy not doing this. I, I was not going to be like that. a father. I love well, so that. that journey, Dave, you know, that's the, which meant, I understood what the, the deal I was making. And then, you know, because the first movie got made, like, I'm just saying it, what happens, I had a good run. It was just mm-hmm. that then at the, in my late forties is when it got dicey and <laughs> I didn't know what was going to happen really, mm-hmm. or just if I'd have to massively downsize everything. And then I, then David and I got fortunate, you know, yeah. we, I mean, Amy hates when I say that it was like, because we worked our fucking asses off writing the thing and getting it going and we never quit. Like you don't quit. Right. But, but see, I, but, but what I'm keyed on here in what you're just saying is, is the deal you sort of made with yourself when the children arrived, meaning like you want to be a happy, balanced father. You want to be a person who is tapped into the lifeblood of, of, of what makes you tick. Right. And I think for me, that's true. That's true with my kids. You know, I want my kids to, I mean, I think, you know, I could, I could maybe go get a job that, that, you know, I don't, I don't know what I'd do, but I, you know, in theory, when you're a creative person, there's always this like, choose your own adventure path. You didn't take where you're like, ah, I could go into whatever, you know, fill in the blank. And and maybe that would provide more stability or something, but ultimately would I be happy? And would I be the best version of myself? That's what you're actually passing to your kids. No, no kid actually cares about, um, you know, material things. They, they want peace in the house. They want love in the house. And I think like, if I can be creative and, and follow that path and continue to do that, then I can provide a better life for my kids than I would if I was, you know, building houses. Well, North Star is great in the way that it talks about this. You know, it's funny. I, I uh, um, Thanks, man. But, you know, that, which is a, a a song in this album. And, and it's funny, a, a year and a half ago, Dan Leas and I wrote a song called North Star together. You did? And yeah, like really like a year and a half ago, Dan Leas and I had this title. I had this, But it's totally different. I mean, it's not at all about that. When I saw it, I was like, no way. And then your song is so different than the song that Dan, man, that guy is a beautiful 
yeah. musician. I don't it's, know. You know, you never know, man. The river of creativity is flowing. We're all on it, right? So you know, you might have been upstream or downstream, and we and we sort of got the same fish. Sometimes you end up with similar titles. Yeah, it's such a funny <laughs> thing. It really did. You'll you uh, you know, ours like you know, you're, I mean, the same tag. Obviously, you're my north. Like where it gets oh, to, wow, obviously, wow, it's the wow. same. Well, it has to because yeah, like that's the idea, right? Uh, once you get that title. Some way or another, that's where you're getting to. Exactly. Uh, right. But I loved where yours, what yours was about, which is so different than, you know, just that you're, you're kids who can't even understand it really exactly. Right. That, you, you know, what you're saying in the, the fullness of it. Right. Yeah. yeah. We'll see. We'll see how they respond once they're a little older. It's funny. I mean, even as I, as I go into the, this new record, um, you know, I guess for, for blood harmony, it was a lot more about, okay, what connects us all? What connects, you know, I felt this big connection to my kids, this big connection to my wife, my brother. Yes. And, and so, you know, that idea of if we all sing together, we can create this harmonious situation. It just seemed like a good counterpoint to what was happening in the world. You know, it seemed like more and more. A necessary counterpoint, dude, it's a necessary counterpoint. It's a sad and, and right. that was the, the best with way. a lot of what was yeah. going on. And, and, but it's interesting now that my kids are three and I've, I've started to tour on this record and we've sort of come out, we're sort of coming out of the pandemic. I'm definitely um, trying to temper that excitement and really peaceful, loving situation that was that kind of made blood harmony with what the world actually looks like right now. And I think it'll, it'll prove to make, uh, maybe a f more familiar lyrical statement, you know, for me, for people who listen to what I do, the, the songs that are coming are a lot more like, all right, well, it's good that I had these kids, but how in the hell are we going to get them? Oh yeah. Well, what world am I given? I mean, yeah. What right. world are we leaving them? hundred percent. Well, okay. So I want to talk about this, you know, it, it's fascinating to me that the guy whose album is called bury me in Philly lives in Santa Barbara. <laughs> That's why, which is the most decidedly unsan un Philadelphia place on earth. You yes, know? and yes. and yeah, maybe where you have to go to live. But before we get to San Santa Barbara, you know, I was thinking about the Philly guys I'm friends with mm -hmm. uh, and women, but this is really Philly guys. Philly guys, <laughs> everyone's proud of place and where they come from. But I don't know. Can you just talk about Philly and what a childhood there does to the way? a person thinks of themselves in like the country in the world, like what it teaches Philly people about place and about their place. Cause there's something that runs. Fuck yeah. It's a bizarre place. The further away I get from it. And that is, I've been out here for about 10 years now out in Santa Barbara. Yeah. And you know, the reason people move anywhere is either love or work. And, and for me, it was love. I met my wife and, you know, I didn't think it would last. I didn't think she'd put up with my nonsense. And, and so I said, oh, well, it's a beautiful place. It's a beautiful woman. I love her. Let me see how this goes. And, you know, it, it blossomed into the life that we now have and our children and so on. But um, it still is somewhat incongruent in that it's so expensive to live here that we probably can't purchase a home. And so right. we're in this very strange bubble. Um, it's it's really bizarre. We could probably pretty easily go to Philadelphia and purchase a home and be around my family. And, and that there's a big pull towards that. That may still happen, but yeah, Santa Barbara has taught me a lot about Philadelphia. Um, just by, just by that big comparison you're describing, I would say with Philly, it has a lot more to do 
with um, class and economics. I think that's where that perspective comes from. Um, there's not a lot of artifice in Philadelphia. At least there wasn't in the 80s and 90s. There, you know, it was it was uh, dismissive of of almost like any wealth or success like that, that kind of mentality was like, you know, your Dukes are up as a Philadelphian. Um, You know, if you follow the sports teams, uh, yes, there's a lot. Your Dukes are up because you're constantly uh, underestimated. You're underestimated. Yeah. There's New York and there's DC nearby. And then there's this crazy California thing that's way out West where all the quote unquote kooks live, you know, like, ah, it's crazy out there. They don't, they, you know, so it's it's weird. I don't know if I'm doing such a good job of describing the specifics of being a Philadelphian, but I do think that um, it's weird because like people are proud of something they had no control over. You're born in Philadelphia. Yeah. It's like, well, you didn't have any say in that. Why? What are you so proud of? Um, and I think it more has to do with it's look, it's a hard place um, to grind it out. It, it It's really cold. It's really hot. There's there's not a ton of um, cosmopolitan attention on it. It's a working class town. And so I think people band together to get through the difficulties of that and therefore develop this pride that um, has a real chip on its shoulder. Um, there's not a lot of championships in Philadelphia. There's, there, you know, we could count them on, on certainly, I think it's two hands in my lifetime, maybe one hand. Um, and so, and, and there's this weird, Wait, what, what year were you born? What year were you born? I was born in 1978. I mean, yeah. So you got a, you got a 76ers two, maybe one or two 76ers championships. Yeah. We've got, you one. got Dr. J when you were Dr. J and, and when you were li- like, uh, when you were little, when I was little. Yeah. Yeah. But like the world series was 1980 and then 2008, you know, so we had those two, we had the super bowl, which is the greatest thing ever, you know, for a working class town to beat the Patriots yes. against Brady. That was like, you know, that's right. Of- but all this stuff, uh, yeah, all this stuff makes you feel because it is like Philly against the world. I always, but yeah. it's weird. It's Philly against the world. But I, the Philadelphians I know are often trying to say like, you know, th- there's just a lot of this notion that it's the best place on earth because it's shitty. That like, <laughs> because it's shitty, it's the very best. It's like, they make it almost a point to say that. Yeah. Do, I, I think that Jersey sort of does that too. You know, Jersey's sort of, you know, they're very similar in that way. Like Jersey is either a suburb of New York or a suburb of Philadelphia. So you have a lot of overlap there. Yeah. But yeah. Philly people think that they're better than decidedly better than Jersey. Yeah. And there's really not a whole lot to base that on. In other words, like there's not tons of <laughs> like we have the roots, yeah. You know, we have Hall and Oates. It's not like we have this vast, uh, mo- yes. really impactful music scene like we do now. There's the Gamble and part. Huff. I mean, Gamble and Huff. Right? Sure, Gamble and Huff. Yeah. But I mean, if you compare that to even Seattle in terms right. of exports, like it, it, it Philly. For oh, and Jersey does have, I mean, Jersey does have the Bruce. He does have Bruce. Yeah. Bon Jovi, it does have Bruce. It's crazy. Bon Jovi also important, but like does have, you know, Bruce. Right. So when you're growing up, man, uh, and you're this kid that you are, this curious art kid with an artistic band who loves music, and you're in a family that's going through a period of fascination with evangelicalism, and mm-hmm. you're in that kind of school. Where, 
how would it work when teachers would recognize you were a good writer, you were smart, and then have to kind of like grapple with whatever it was you wanted to talk about versus whatever it was. That's they a wanted great to talk about. question. Two of those teachers were just out at the last couple shows of our tour. One was a sixth That's grade awesome. teacher who, who um, she came to the Philly show. And one was my high school English teacher who came to the Boston show. And um, both of them at different points kind of pulled me aside and said, look, I know, I know you're getting into trouble. I see what's going on. You're, you're sort of, you know, for lack of a better term, raging and raging against this machine. You know, I was definitely outspoken. I thought so many of the things that I was seeing were, um, were just inhumane, you know, mistreatment of, of humanity, um, you know, random drug, uh, drug testing and so on. You know, there, there was, there's all this crazy stuff that, that went on and, and I was into sex, drugs and rock and roll as a teenager in, in an evangelical situation. So it wasn't jiving, but these two teachers pulled me aside at different points and said, you, you have a gift for writing and that'll be what, you know, that that'll be what can guide you through. Um, That's beautiful. Yeah. And it was, yeah. I mean, I was so thrilled to see both of those teachers out at the show because of this very thing. Like those are things you remember as a kid. Did they both stay in the church? No, no, they did not. And, and I think there, especially for my English teacher in high school, she distrusted the administration, distrusted the culture that was sort of really swirling around and was had our back. Me and my friend at the time, who was also a really good writer, um, he was just about to come out of the closet. And so that was that was going to be another big thing. She really looked out for us and knew that we were kind of misfits and and knew that we did still, you know, despite sort of being misunderstood, she knew that our hearts were in the right place, that we were sort of um, fighting for the little guy. Humanity. You were, yeah, you were humanists. Yes, exactly. So even if you, even if you were secular, mm -hmm. you know, in your bed, you were a humanist and she could recognize that somehow. Yeah. And that's a beautiful, So you did feel seen a little, so you felt seen in a couple of spots that were crucial. You yes. were seen, not made invisible. Right. Right. Wherein, but the structure that we were, we were working within was trying to crush that out and, and was trying to snuff that out and was trying to give us um, real specific rules about what we should and shouldn't do. And, um, and so those were little life rafts from those teachers and those different adults that, that sort of mentored along the way and said like, yeah, you know, we get it. Music, writing, creativity, um, express this discomfort you're having with, with, the American system or the evangelical system or the economic system that we live in, you know, the capitalist kind of structure, whatever, whatever it was that we were kind of looking at and going, man, this seems fucked up. This seems like not the American dream. This seems, you know, all the things we were struggling yeah. with. There were people along the way who were like, keep going, keep, keep chasing, you know, that, that thing wherein you can create, you can create something that describes how you feel about all this. And were you at the time, had you already, I know you said sex, drugs and rock and roll, but had you started heavily drinking at that time? Um, yeah, I would say probably 14, 15, somewhere in there. It was right around when um, that whole second wave of punk rock kind of broke, you know, Nirvana and, uh, you know, grunge or something. So I was super into 
I, I guess I got into metal first, you know, that was like fifth and sixth grade. I started to listen to Iron Maiden and, and, you know, Aerosmith around that time. I had a whole, a bunch of that kind of stuff going and I got further and further into punk right as the grunge thing happened. And then sort of, I figured out pretty quickly, like, Oh, these are the, some Nirvana and the misfits are essentially doing the same thing, you know, the, musically. And, um, and and then I was all in, you know, from there it went into hardcore punk. But yes, I was drinking pretty heavily. Did you go back to the Pixies from there? Did you go back to the Pixies? I went back to the Pixies. Yeah, I uh, I got into the Pixies via Nirvana. I wasn't, I didn't know the Pixies. So the replacements too then, then you got the replacements from that too. That's right. Yep. Yeah. The, the backwards into those things. Yeah. Yeah. There was a, there was, I had one, another mentor, a guy in Philly who owns a record store called Mean Street Music. Uh, this guy, Pat, he's a dear friend of mine. He he was looking out for me. I'd come in with my lawn mowing money and ask him for Exodus and Testament records and things like this. And he, yeah. what if you tried R.E.M.? What if you tried Did Marty Friedman play in one of those bands? Marty Friedman played in uh, he played in Megadeth. Megadeth. Well, no, then he played in Megadeth, but he was in one of those because like Testament or Exodus are on those U.S. metal albums. And maybe he was in a band called Hawaii first. Marty. Friedman. Oh, maybe that so. Was I don't like know. A guitar. Like a guitar fanatic. Yeah, the, the shredder guys. But yeah, Pat at Main Street Music helped me uh, with, with some of those things you're describing, like Pixie. You know, he'd be like, oh, Nirvana, you came in and bought Nirvana. Like, you should check out the Pixies or you should oh, check that's out. That's so cool. Yeah. Oh, that's so great. Man. So cool. And, and then how did you get to friend. Bruce? How did you well, get Bruce to Bruce? Loon, and he was always there. So so pre all that metal and, and hardcore and punk and all that stuff, you know, just as a six, seven, eight year old kid, I was into the Hooters were, were a big phenomenon in Philly. So the pop band. And then Eric ended up, of course, then Eric yeah. ended up producing a record. Right. So they sort of captivated my young imagination. And then and, and right around that time, like Reckless came out, Born in the USA came out. Um, uh, Tom Petty was huge then. So they were always part of my musical fabric. Like they were in there from the giddy up. Cause that's the weird thing about my folks was, yeah, they were evangelical, but my dad had Bob Dylan records and Springsteen records and all that, you know, the stones and the Beatles were huge for them. So all that stuff seeped in. And then when I got to be about, I got, I went through the whole punk thing. I got to be about 20, 22, something like that. And went back in real deep into Springsteen. Um, and so much of it was familiar, but I was looking at it through this new lens of, of, um, yeah, yeah Bruce, of course, of uh, this new lens of both, both who you were as a young man and yep. all this other music. Yeah. Bruce, a constant for me too. Like when I was into all the stuff I've ever been into, right. There was never a time I wasn't also listening to Bruce and then Bob, once I got into Bob, but I mean, I get into Bruce much earlier than I got into Bob, but those things were just always riding along exactly. no matter where else I was. There was right. just never a time I wasn't going back to Bruce's albums, you know? Right. Um, I mean, he just, he's part, if you're a Philadelphian, a New Jersey guy, New York, any of that stuff, he's kind of like the Statue of Liberty. He's always, you know, he's always there. He's, it, it, or, or he's like part of the skyline or something. Um, no, it's, it's amazing to connect. It's amazing the sort of, in levels of influence. I did want to talk about this because when I did the Q&A episode last week, mm -hmm. uh, Anna asked me that question and we got kind of into it about writing, the difference between writing if you're high or writing sober. And yeah. so for me, it was easy. I mostly have always only written sober. I've only written high a few times. Though I know, There's a difference. And at times, as I said, you know, the party line is you get nothing out of writing on substances. But of course, that's not true. Like, right. of course, you get else that you might not have gotten right it might but 
but but for someone whose modality was often to be fucked up so mm-hmm. sober like you are yeah what was the what what did it feel like to have to really do this all sober? and how do you de- quantify the difference well i think you know i'm not a party line sober guy so so it's interesting you bring that up um i do think you hear that and you go like people will go like well you never get anything good out of being fucked up it's like no you get a lot good out of being fucked up and yeah, you do. and that serves you for the time that you're getting fucked up i'm i'm very i'm much more interested in the nuance of this than the sobriety of it um, yeah me too yeah good for for me um one of the things that was really useful in terms of writing and drinking was a hangover in a hangover you're soft and you're kind of um you're open to you don't feel great um but you're open to the the channels of sadness or regret or things and i would get songs out of that out of hangovers you know and especially long benders that would go for days or whatever and which I, i can't even imagine doing that now um but i would get songs because i think i would be soft i would be um a lot of my armor wouldn't be up because fragile, fragile. Yeah, you're like fragile. A that's, a, that's a great, that's a great descriptor. Um, and, and your armor's down, you're kind of shattered. And, and suddenly these feelings are able to really go through. So when I realized that that wasn't coming back, if I was going to maintain sobriety, I wasn't going to get into that place, that fragility as easily. Um, it became incumbent upon me to figure out other ways to get there. And Yes. I think for me, that's what's so important about female energy in my life. Like my sisters and my wife and and all of my my friends that are women, like that energy is kind of where I go to when I get stuck or if I'm writing and, and I'm getting cerebral or or I can't figure out how to 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 solve a problem within a song or something. I think that softness and fragility i kind of turn towards again i I keep bringing her up but patty griffin does that for me and um you know i think brandy carlisle does that for me there's just certain songs yeah for sure yeah where where it's in their voice aretha franklin you know there's so many people who who have that and they and they tend for me to be women um and and that's kind of where i've turned so so ultimately that's the thing with the sobriety that i had to figure out was like how do you get yourself raw and into that place to channel that energy without dismantling your life. You know, that, that, that's, that's what was happening for me was I was going down a path wherein I was like, I'm going to fuck this up again. I'm going to end up fucking up this relationship with my now wife, Natasha. Um, if I don't get it, if I don't get in the middle of this and try to figure this out. And so I think that's the big difference is like, it's it, well, it's it's a lot like anything with sobriety. It's like you have to figure out new ways to do to do life. You know, you have to figure out like, all right, well, how's this going to work if I don't have that crutch? That was for a while very very useful. It was really it was well. So that, cool. Yeah, that's the thing. It is useful, but then the product. You know, I love on the road. I, on the road is one of the greatest. Yeah. You know, like I I don't think that guy writes that book if he's not just jacked out of his mind on speed, but maybe we have him for much longer and he writes a bunch of deeper, more important books right. down the road. So it's, there's this, you know, at a certain point, the lives are, are, are more important. Uh, but now do you not, are you, cause I imagine some of your kind of rip roaring rock songs, you'd have a beer or two when you were writing back in the old days. And do you ever want to, does it ever think, do you ever think to yourself it'd be, you know, 
I don't here to do this if I had a beer or no, you're no, I would think I would, I guess I just, I do the calculation for me. I'm like, well, yeah, that sounds fun. Oftentimes I'm like, especially, you know, happy hour when people start happy hour, I go, Oh man, that looks fun. Um, there's certain things that make me want to drink. I mean, they just probably always will baseball games, happy hour, um, weddings. There's certain things where I'm like, man, that looks fun. Everyone's coming together. Everyone's lubed up, ready to roll. And it's a party. Um, but I just do the calculation. I'm like, well, what's this, what could this lead to? What am I, what am I gambling with here? And now it's my, my children and it's just not worth it. Not worth the gamble. No. Also, uh, you know, you're ultimately you're gambling with your, with your life and, uh, right. And we need you, uh, you know, man, like I said, at the beginning of this, you know, I just think you're one of the best songwriters and singers out there, you know, uh, and you. you make really great records and thank you. I'll, I'll, I'll urge people again to go and buy, uh, you know, buy or stream or however you engage with, uh, with the music, go check out Dave Hawes, check out blood harmony, check out kick, uh, or if you want to do what I do when I'm turned on to an artist, if someone tells me, maybe go back to the Philly album, like do Philly and then do yeah. Kick and then do Blood Harmony, like, you know, do the full Dave Hawes. Give yourself it's a, a good time Hawes. to get on board. There's only five records at this point. So it's not one yeah. of those, like, it's not a hard, um, it's not a onboarding. Hard, it's not a hard onboarding. <laughs> right. It's not like getting into Elvis Costello where you're like, where do I even start? Um, but no, I appreciate that. Still I mean, worth I, it, by the way, worth it to get into Elvis. Of Costello. course, of course. Right. Really right. worth it. Yeah. But yes. Daunting, daunting, but worth it. Totally worth, worth it. it. Yeah. I mean, I appreciate that, man. And, and I appreciate all of the guidance. I kind of think of you as a mentor in that way. You've been good to me and good to my music. And, and also the conversations we've had that aren't on the podcast um, we're, we're great. You know, you, you kind of were like, look, man, the creative life is, is, is worth it. There's, there's, um, there's things ahead that, that are going to surprise you and, and excite you and it's going to work out. It's going to be good. And, and that was a really helpful conversation that we had that, that day. I, I, I treasure that. And, and so I appreciate all the things that you've done for me. I'm always here for you, Dave. People, you can find Dave, uh, on Twitter. Are you on Instagram? I, you're on Insta too, right? I am. Yeah. Too. It's just Dave Haas on Instagram. I think it's Haas Dave on Twitter and um, it's all, it's all at DaveHaas.com. So you can find everything yeah, we're up to there and get the records and see him on tour when he comes through. All right, Dave, have a good day in Santa Barbara, my man. Thanks brother. We'll see you soon. All right. Bye folks. You can find me at Brian compliment on Twitter. You can email me the moment BK at gmail.com. Don't try to do the thing of sending me your album like Dave did. Unless I'm <laughs> I'm like All right, everybody. See you next time. Bye. <laughs>